no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World, where the conversation's not always about media or the end or the world, but we try to hit one of something, one of three at, at some point, maybe and and the are the ones we hit. This is Adam. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Ralph Balavo. Balavo. Adam, it is great to be back. It is great to be in your presence. It's been a long time. We've had a whole lot of episodes with uh, guests coming in, and that's been a ton of fun. It's been really great to hear from them. But it's good to be back here with you. I agree. This is the, exciting. I, I love having guests. This is the setting that I appreciate the most. I really enjoy just uh, the banter in which we may or may not come to any gigantic conclusions. We're gonna by the fix. End. We're going to fix everything. That's what we're going to do. I wonder if this is rolled off. Is that better? That's a little better. There we go. Yeah, I like that better, too. Yeah. So I have to tell you a funny thing. All right. Funny thing happened to me at a conference I went to. I've gone to a couple conferences. I have conference stories. One of them was, um, do you remember a program that was made by HBO called John from Cincinnati? Nope. Okay. Nobody watched it. Was it called John it from Cincinnati? It was called John from Cincinnati. Okay. Okay. And uh, you may have remembered Deadwood, right, the, which was the big Western a very crude Western show that HBO did, and David Melch was the person behind it. And he decided he didn't want to do it anymore, so he just stopped and he went and he made the show called John from Cincinnati, which uh, is one of the weirdest television shows ever. Interesting. It's, it's very, very weird. And But I thought it was great. And me and I, there were probably like 15 of us watching it, and I think three of those people actually liked it. <laughs> um, it's not It's not easy. I, you know, I would encourage anybody who is interested in complicated television to try it out because um, it, it, it's like you're watching something where the person was either, you know, completely turned inside out by a religious experience or by um, pharmaceuticals. Some one of the two. So was it set at a conference? It was no, it was not set at a oh. conference. It's set at a border town in Southern California, close to the close to the border of Mexico, and it's about three generations of a surfing family. It's actually um, comes out of a novel that's in a subgenre called surf noir, which okay. are stories, crime stories in the surfing context. And uh, so, you know, the primary motivation of it is that you've got a uh, grandfather uh, who's played by Bruce Greenwood, who's one of my favorite actors, um, who is trying to actually protect his grandson from what had happened to his son, his grandson's father. Uh, his son had been, had done um, sponsorship deals because he was, so the grandfather was this famous surfer. He was just like like world-renowned surfer uh, reputation. And his son was supposed to be even better, right? And But as his son was becoming successful and becoming better, he also got involved in sponsorship deals, which got him too much money, and he kind of blew it all on drugs. So the grandfather is trying to save the grandson from getting involved in anything that's going to destroy his life, like sponsorship deals, because it's looking like the grandson is going to be an even better surfer than the father, who was a better surfer than the grandfather. Okay. All right. So there's all that. Uh, there's and, a, and and this is similar <laughs> this to your is, conference. How? So this is all right. So all right. So, so I'll I'll leave it there. There's more in the show. People levitate. Yeah. There's a lot of arguing. Uh, people have uh, relationships where they electrocute each other. And Jesus 
kind of shows up, um, which John from Cincinnati is sort of like a messianic figure in yeah. any event. So it's okay. a complicated show. I had told a good friend of mine at this conference, the Broadcast Education Association Conference in 2018, he should watch this. Oh, OK. He foolishly trusts me. Yeah. So so we met each other at the 2019, 2019 conference. This is just about three weeks ago. And the first thing he did was say to me, I have to talk to you about that show. It was terrible. It was awful. I couldn't stand it. I'm sitting there with my wife watching it. And she goes to me, is this ever going to make any sense? And I hoped so. And I watched it till the end. And it didn't. <laughs> It was terrible. Why do you like it? So anyway, it was uh, I, it was one of those things where you make a recommendation, and it's like you you want to make the recommendation with a warning. Yeah. So I think John from Cincinnati is a really good thing to watch, but you just have to be ready to d- remove all of your expectations about how TV is supposed to work. I think we should ban recommending shows to one another. <laughs> And I think I, we, we talked about this before that you're yeah. sitting around a dinner table with someone else and you're trying to like you're, go, you're rifling through the TV shows that you're watching, trying right. to land on one that you both have found, you yeah. know, but whatever you are watching, you never recommend that they watch it. It's just like if you stumble upon it, then we can talk about it. But I'm never going to try to add anything else to get your, your cue, you know. Like, That's an interesting because there's all these strategies that kind of come out of the fact that we're in this fragmented world where people stumble across things in very weird ways. Right. And then binge multiple seasons of something. Yeah. And, and yeah. Then... Maybe I should add that to the list of questions I ask on the first day of class is like, you know, what's your name? Where are you from? And then what are you subscribed to? You know, are you a <laughs> Netflix person, a Hulu uh-huh. person, YouTube, what YouTube read? What is it that you subscribe to? And, and we will try to find something or 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 maybe even something like what what do you watch that you absolutely love that you would never ever ever recommend to another Uh, human being which is sort of like it's it's like the old guilty pleasure question but it's kind of like the new version of that because i mean you probably in your catalog of media experiences being as profoundly deep as it is have something that you (laughs) experience on a regular basis and get a lot of joy from but you would never ever tell someone else to watch it yeah, yeah. Do you want to know? What, yeah, I what, want to know what, what, it the, is. what the last that, thing is. That, that, that was a setup. That was a yeah, setup yeah, for you to good. drop it in. Yeah, that's good. Um, so, so it was recently announced that um, a show called Live PD, which is on the, I think it's on A and E. I can't ever remember the difference between A and E and in history. There's, they sort of all all blend with aliens at this point. But um, but it's a show that comes on on the weekends, right? And it's literally like a two hour live PD show. It's sort of like cops, but live basically. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's set within uh, 10 different cities across the United States. Well, it was recently announced that, that the Oklahoma highway patrol is going to be one of the people that they follow. <laughs> and so, uh, my wife and I started watching, we've only watched like a couple times, but, but, you know, part of me like is, uh, incredibly enthralled by like the normal traffic stop that turns into like a drug bust or whatever. I mean, it's like, like you could almost call it, you could play bingo. It's like, okay, I, I, I guarantee they're going to get this, you know, the, this guy for paraphernalia, paraphernalia or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's like you, I'm also like find myself sitting there. It's like, I cannot believe I'm watching this, you know, yeah. and, uh, that it's, it's holding my attention. And they've also got like, uh, uh, commentators that are in the studio, you know, <laughs> <They're> like, <laughs> you mean like they got a play-by-play person yeah, and a yeah. color person. I know. Or... Yeah, it's like it's like uh, <laughs> kind of like what you would see at the Naka halftime show, of, yeah. you know, football game. Like they go back to the studio, and then these they've got you know the expert cops that are talking about how, how to 
you know, how, how they would have maneuvered this situation. It's so just so like, crazy. So they're rotating among these live feeds that they've yeah, got, right? Yeah, and they'll oh, be like, awesome. we're now going to Slidell, Louisiana, you know, and now <laughs> we're going to North Carolina, and now we're going to our feed, and, and they, do, they don't call Oklahoma, like, city or anything. They, they call it the state of Oklahoma, you know? Uh, right. Because, because it's, it's Highway Patrol, right. uh, and no one knows anything beyond the state of Oklahoma. Right, exactly, so, yeah. So we have yet to see anybody that we know, uh, unfortunately. Uh, no family members so far, but yeah. it's, uh, but that's been sort of the show that like I would never recommend it to anybody, uh, but uh, but I, I've I somehow found myself watching it again after watching an episode. Well, yeah, now, a, a, if you've watched it twice, you're committed, right? In, in a very similar category, um, if I if there's like really nothing else that's engaging, and I have like a low amount of intellectual energy. Um, I go to YouTube and find compilations of car crashes. I don't know if we ever talked about this, but it's, uh, I have to say that probably it's dash cam footage. Yeah. Of So not chases. Not chases. Just, just no, crashes. just people doing really <laughs> stupid things, mostly in Russia, um, because dash cams are very, very popular there, and bad driving is apparently very, very popular there. So sometimes it's the car that you're in the dash cam from that gets hit or hit something. Most of the time it's watching somebody else do something incredibly stupid, like mm-hmm. you know, fly across four lanes of traffic and then yeah. swing back and knock somebody else off the road. Um, and there, there, there's, there's very little actual like physical human mayhem, although implied there's a lot of it. But it's just like really engrossing, and I think because... You know, it and it's, so it's just like one after another, usually with um, somebody, you know, saying something in Russian, sometimes very drunk. Uh, sometimes they're having a domestic argument in Russian and they're drunk while they're driving and somebody has an accident in front of them. But it's like it's the same thing. It's sort of like I think the, you know, sort of like the, the, the you remember Crash? Do you yeah. remember the film Crash? It's yeah. sort of like oh, the, yeah. the, the, you know, the, the Crash equivalent of cat videos, That's right? Hilarious. Watching people destroy their cars. Speaking of uh, conferences, so uh, a show that I started watching purely when I was traveling because I, I thought that there was no way I could ever talk here and watching it was a, was it's also on a it's called the first 48 and um, basically the, the the premise is is that if you know for most murder cases uh, if you know the if the police can get a lead within the first 48 hours it like you know dramatically increases their ability to solve the crime or whatever um, but and and basically so it's a it's a it's a murder crime but it's not like the uh, 2020, you know, um, they were just a normal couple, and, you know, and, and, uh, and, and then things gone wrong. Um, but it's like the most, like what I imagine most murder cases are, which is basically it's an hour long television show where someone finally either admits to doing it or, or gives away who did it. You know, like, like most things are solved by someone ratting a mouse right. what I've learned through watching the first 48. Uh, but there's, but it, you know, it, it definitely pulls down the level of drama that you usually see. So, in those. so I would watch that yeah. like in a hotel room. That was like my hotel show it was like, because it's always on, on, you know, for like six episodes at a time. And I just, yeah, late at night, uh-huh. uh, eat my hotel candy and watch my first so, 48 hours. So the lesson you episodes. take away from that is pick your accomplices very carefully so they won't rat you Don't out. Don't brag about it. That's <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Keep it to yourself if you do it. That's that's what I've learned. Yeah. I think there's actually um, – so the, the other conference that I went to, which, which I'll talk a little bit about because I think it's um, interesting, is the Popular Culture Association which was in Washington, D.C. And the fascinating thing about it, and I think we all have this experience, that when you're around people who 
have um, similar interests, you know, for, for us as academics, if the interests are in popular culture, when you're around people who are interested in the same collection of things, one of the nice things about it is you don't have to explain why you're interested in it. Sure. So if you were like, you know, an immense fan of, you know, uh, 60s garage rock, for example, and somebody else might go, why do you want to listen to stuff that is poorly played by, you know, frustrated teenagers in Boston in 1968? You know, you might have to explain that to like another person. But when you're in a group of people who have the same kind of interests, you don't have to explain why right. you're invested in it. And then you can go into the details of it that make it really interesting. This is why like Comic-Con is a thing, yeah, right? Yeah, right, exactly. Um, in fact, this is the third time at a Popular Culture Association conference that the tail end of it was overlapping with some kind of costume conference. Uh, there was one in Seattle where uh, at the tail end of the Popular Culture Association, Association conference, the streets were flooded with teenagers who had come to Seattle to stay in a hotel with a bunch of probably 18 people in a hotel room or something like that and dress up like their favorite anime character. And it was just beautiful. I mean, because the, the 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 costumes were very, very carefully put together, and you know, wild colors and and wonderful hair and makeup and everything, and so it was like, but it was like watching the conference slowly turn from, you know, academic nerds mm. into cosplayers, which was mm. kind of a remarkable thing to watch. So anyway, so the so the, one of the and one of the reasons I mentioned music is I, I got okay go ahead, sorry, go sorry. now now I have this idea of just I want to know like the academics who study cosplay what are their conferences like right <laughs> like in because if they're if they're like every other academic conference that's got to be a letdown for someone who who. Uh, who who studies cosplay? Right, right, right. Unless you have like a guest speaker, or you're on the furries panel, or something like that, <laughs> and you have like you know, you have actual witnesses who are yeah. Part of it. That's that, that's the flip side of like the cosplayers who are playing the role of the academic of the academic right. conference. Yes, <laughs> yeah, the kind of secret. I did have a student one year in in a documentary class do a portrait piece about a cosplayer, and it was yeah. really good. I mean, there. are they're really interesting people and you know it's just you know every day is halloween so you know you get to you get to sort of indulge in that and that's you know kind of a real interesting way of creative cultural expression the thing about the academic conference is it's you know it's all the nerds who are invested intellectually in that stuff and that's that's what one of the reasons yeah. that i love going to this conference is because and i i do a lot of work with the you'll be shocked to hear this with the horror division hmm. um that's that's what i spend a lot of my time with and uh it was really fascinating this year they're sort of like you know the year goes along and there's something this year the film that people seem to be really interested in uh, was the film Hereditary. So there were there was at least one full panel and then several other presentations about different aspects of the film Hereditary, which, you know, was kind of one of those things. And it's like every year there's a combination of like a, a film or a book that came out that influenced a lot of people or, you know, perhaps somebody important passed away. And so then there'll be a memorial panel or something like that uh, in the division. But it's just fascinating to be around people who have these common interests. And, you know, it's it's almost like the, the beginnings of the Internet when people were finding themselves online with other people with the same interests. This is yeah. just the, the expensive face-to-face -face academic version of that. Right, so, right. So. Well, where, where has been the big sub-discipline split? Because every discipline has to have a split. Like, what's the big argument that you either fall on one side or the other in, this, in the horror subdivision of Pop Culture Association? Well, all right, so there are actually 
four. <laughs> this is gonna be great. This is like this is like okay. Just nerds give me just, just give me one. Just give me okay. one. No, no. I mean, there are four subdivisions. There's oh, a, okay. there's a there's a horror division. There's a Stephen King division. Oh wow. There's a gothic division. Oh. And there's a vampire division. Okay. So each of those you know I has see. its own kind of stuff, and there's overlap between them. So for example, this year we usually do a screening that's yeah. called Welcome to Our Nightmare. You know, this was like the I don't know, seventh or eighth annual. So we watched the movie Creep Show, which was hilarious and fantastic. But it was all those groups kind of pulling together wow. because Creep Show was written by Stephen King and it's a horror thing and it's I also see. got some gothic elements. And uh, I don't think there's any vampires in it, but they are, they're happy to be associated with yeah. it. So, so there's subdivisions. But inside the individual division, where does the split come? There's lots of different things because there are, you know, there are, I don't, in, when I'm working with these people, and I think it's interesting to try to think about. Um, how much investment we put into the whole liking, not liking things, thinking something's good or not. And I think we may have talked about this before, but I usually, right. you know, in interacting with classes, try to tell them to get away from those kind of yeah. conversations. Sometimes some of the material that people are talking about and presenting kind of becomes that. You know, so they were talking about, well, this was good and hereditary and this was not so good and blah, blah, blah. And and that it's just not necessarily all that yeah. helpful. So yeah. But, um, but as long as we're on that trail, let me mention one other thing that I think is kind of an interesting media piece that's available to people right now. Okay. Um, there's a, a, a television series that appeared on Netflix um, not too long ago um, called uh, Black Summer. And it's a TV series that has this really – and the reason I'm mentioning it is not just because of my um, obsession with horror, but also because it's got a very, very interesting structure – um, because it's basically done in little pieces. And so we started, we had, didn't know anything about it. And, and, uh, we started watching it and noticed that it had these title cards every few minutes, every five minutes or so, it would use a title card to introduce another section. And the episodes are not terribly long, as short as 20 minutes, as long as 45, but nothing longer than that. Um, and so, you know, after about five or six of these, the person I was watching it with said, you know, this kind of looks like a web series. And mm. in fact, that was kind of like what was behind it. One of the interesting things is that it's produced by uh, a company called The Asylum. And The Asylum, uh, I should say, oops, sorry about that. I do that once every episode. So that's my official smacking the microphone point. Um, it is a, an apocalyptic zombie thing um, that's shot in Canada, pretending to be not Canada or whatever it is that Canada pretends to be. What's interesting about it is you can tell from watching it that they're basically taking um, fairly simple elements of a genre like that and then kind of letting them play out. So there's a group of characters that get into a high school. And, you know, one of the first things you do in these, like, zombie apocalypse situations is try to see if the place is safe. So they don't find any zombies, but they find... Uh, and I'm ruining just a little bit. So if you're interested in watching this, they I won't say a lot about it, but they find a group of, like, regular human being boys, high school-age boys, who have, like, gone around the bend and become evil mm. so that's that's sort of the kind of thing but it takes a number of different you know steps to kind of get there so it's a it's a really clever series so the company that made it the asylum they used to pride themselves on finding out what the next big movie was going to be and then releasing a ripoff of it like a month before it came out so you'd like go to the video store and my favorite example was when they were doing a new version of i am legend with will smith a month before that uh, asylum released a film called i am omega and Will uh. Smith, the Will Smith role was being played by my favorite backup B-level actor, Mark Dascasos, who uh, who you'll see in the new John Wick film when it comes out in about a month. Um, 
So they're a company that's really clever with marketing and, and low-budget stuff, and they're always very entertaining, not necessarily what people would typically call good, but very entertaining. But they've moved over into doing this really interesting television stuff. They did Z Nation, which was another kind of zombie theme thing that they do. But I think it's the structure that it's this webisode thing that that was why I wanted to mention it, because I think it's a really interesting way to think about you know doing television drama is in little pieces that are really built more for like kind of you know, internet consumption yeah. kind of thing. Do you have any uh, YouTube <clears throat> channels that you subscribe to and watch and consume in the same way that you consume um, more mainstream media? I don't. Probably the thing that I pay the most attention to are bits of shows that I don't otherwise want to watch the whole show. So, like, we always look at the uh, Closer Look pieces that Seth Meyers does. I see. Um, you know, and then whatever collection of car accident <laughs> videos yeah. are there. But what about you? Um, there, there are, I don't know if there's anything I follow religiously. Um, I, there's a few fitness channels that I keep up with that mm-hmm. are strictly YouTube, but that's about it. But that, I see that as the biggest difference between myself and my, my kids who could, you know, they have, they have specific YouTube channels that they love the specific kids that are on, um, you know, YouTube channels that are, that are made by kids for kids essentially. Um, and what I'd argue in some ways it's, it's more appealing content to kids than what we see on the Disney juniors and the Nickelodeons because, uh, it, it, it's real kids. It's not kid actors essentially playing cheesy parts, you know, uh, saying lines to laugh tracks in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they, they really love their YouTube and, um, I've yet to completely move completely over to that. I, I think there's, yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a generational characteristic for people who consume those sorts of things. Like, cause some of these, you know, some of the, I guess we're kind of calling them influencers now who, right. who have channels with like a lots of followers. Right. And so they're able to monetize what they're doing pretty heavily. Yeah. Um, and I'm less interested in that both because of habit, right? Sure. Um, that I never got into consuming things like that. And also I don't really care to be influenced by people yeah. about my you know, clothing and makeup. I can make yeah. those decisions all by myself. So. But you probably are, right? I mean, there are probably people that you do follow to some, I mean, I guess it depends on what platforms that you, that you're on as well. If you're, if you're not an Instagram person, you probably don't see as much influencer content as you, yeah. as you likely would, because that's really the big platform for influencers. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, I think, and, and, you know, I mean, I think it'll be hilarious as each generation kind of fills their routine with what they do. And as long as it doesn't go away, then they're not going to have time to do, you know, right. whatever the next generation thing is going to be. Sure. So all the time that maybe you or I would do um, just, you know, trolling on Facebook right. is something that there's a generation beneath us that doesn't in, yeah. doesn't spend any time doing that. And they're locked maybe a lot into Instagram or something like that. Yeah. So. Speaking of screen time. Yes. You've been thinking about this. I, I have. There was a... There was a uh, uh, a new publication from the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics, and uh, was published um, fairly recently. Um, I think uh, today, actually, is when it appeared, April twenty fourth, and it was uh, an article they put together called "Beyond Screen Time: Encourage Families to Think Critically About Media." So, and it's written by uh, Jenny Radeski, and um, it's it's an interesting discussion that that I think would be worth looking at for parents who are trying to think about. Um, media consumption in a more digitally literate kind of way. What sorts of things 
should people be thinking about, particularly if they're parents of kids, so that because there's you know there's always this controversy about how much media exposure should kids have, how much screen time should they have, and all that sort of thing. And you know so and and she basically runs through a lot of the similar points that come up in media literacy all the time. The idea that media are socially constructed, that media can be used to create, solve problems, spread goodness, and connect with others, not just to consume entertainment. Some, um, the, and these are uh, some technologies are designed with children's interest in mind, while others serve the creator's own interests. A lot of things posted on the internet are inaccurate or need to be talked through with parents. And I think these are, you know, thinking about conversations that have to be going on. That are maybe a little more sophisticated than the oh you shouldn't watch that it's you know right. it's it's offensive or something like that, but but to try to you know develop more culturally literate consumers with our kids as they're growing up or with young people that we have any contact with, so that they're thinking about why things are being created the way that they are, um, and and so this was just kind of a really good overview that that they're publishing about how to start thinking about instead of just trying to avoid media to actually engage with it and try to get kids to engage with it too because they can they can you know they don't have a very sophisticated way of interrogating this but but they're the media is going to be there for them in any event and the better that they're you know that they're enabled to like ask critical questions of what they're going to be presented with then i think that their experience with media is going to be deeper and they're going to be better consumers particularly in an environment where a lot of the stuff that you consume might be um untrue right the sure. whole fake news problem or it might be just there for commercial purposes like i think um understanding that something that looks like a, an appealing piece of information is actually clickbait, right? And it's actually just trying to accumulate clicks so somebody else can monetize what they're doing. And the you know the more the more people are aware of that in their media experience, the less they're not understanding the implications of what they do online, and they retain better control over what they do. So, so that was an interesting publication. Now, uh, affiliated with that, so that's in the uh, American Association of Pediatrics. Um, this is often used as an example, though, of of something that you know when you're thinking about media literacy, you have to be careful of, um, because there is also an organization called the American College of Pediatricians, and the American College of Pediatricians is not the American Academy of Pediatrics, but this is one of those things where you would actually actually have to look it up. Now, if you, you know, so when I found this article earlier today, I remembered that somebody had talked once about fake pediatrician organizations that actually have really strong political political agendas. And so the American College of Pediatrics is a socially conservative advocacy group of pediatricians and other healthcare professionals. And a lot of what they're involved in, these fake pediatrician groups, is anti-LGBTQ activity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're trying to essentially advance and, an, you know, an, uh, um, a heteronormative agenda. That's the term that we use, heteronormative, the idea that everything is supposed to be, you know, um, uh, along those like very traditional lines of one man, one woman kind of thing. Um, and, you know, if, if one chooses to agree with them, that's fine. But the, the, the thing that's disturbing about it is that they're like pretending to be something they're not. And so that, um, as we've talked about on this, on this program a number of times on this podcast series, um, is something that the more, you know, you should never take anything at face value and look up what it is, you know. So when you see something that's an organization that appears to be legit, it's probably a good idea to do a little checking around, and it's really not hard to do, right? I mean, this is, if you go back to our episode with Mike Caulfield, um, he'll talk about how you can do this in 30 seconds usually to find out actually what the organization is. 
Um, so this one, I mean, the American College of American College of Pediatricians, you know, you, you can find out on the Wikipedia page exactly what they are. But if you were to see a news release by them and not check the organization, you might not know necessarily what their agenda is actually all about. So that's just one of those things that to become better media literate people, you know, looking up what these organizations actually are is a good idea. Mm. What is the worst part of the American college pediatricians? The American, the college, or the pediatrician part? <laughs> I, 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 well, uh, I don't know. You know, I mean, I guess it would have to be a, the College of Pediatricians. That has to, you know, the American Academy, American College of Pediatricians. It's really funny how, you know, which, which one, you know, you, you would think that they are, you know, kind of a collection of pediatricians who are telling you what the pediatric community has come to the consensus on. And I don't even, you know, I, I even have suspicions sometimes about those organizations when they're not necessarily media organizations because the way they think about media is from a particular perspective. So right. um, their, their way of thinking about the way we interact with our kids in media is motivated from the idea that they just don't want children to be harmed by it. And so that makes them actually more um, skeptical about kids getting involved in media when they're younger, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that becomes a challenge that, that, you know, that as parents or, again, young people that we might have an influence on, you know, how can we, on the one hand, kind of keep them safe? And at the other, by the other hand, part of that safety is how much do you know about the media you're consuming? And how do you encourage people to ask critical questions so they understand that? Yeah. I mean, I also think it's what what specific media is appropriate for which age group as well you know they my kids are at the age where they'll they'll ask a lot more questions about something than they used to which means that some stuff that would fly over their head you know is now starting to sink in a little bit and so you're, you're also trying to ride that line of like what's what's appropriate for a a uh, a young young kid right so and if they still asking you then they they think you know something Right, and that's that's got that's on the clock too. And if I don't know it, <laughs> Siri does. Yes, that's true. That's usually their next follow up. Let's yeah. ask Siri. Oh, really? They yeah. do that? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. At some point, you know, I, I mean, you know, I, I like to show the we can look it up. You know, if we don't know the answer, one, I think it's helpful for parents to admit they don't know everything, and then rather than just say I don't know or make up an answer, you yeah. know, walk them through how exactly we can we can look this up. And Siri's mm-hmm. a fun way of introducing that concept of, hey, Siri, you know, when did this happen? Uh-huh. And, uh, you know. Do, uh, do you have them look up things online, too, on keyboards or just mostly using Siri at this point? We just, uh, so my oldest daughter uh, uh, performed her first Google search last week. Because uh, we found the browser tab still open, uh-huh. and the search was for uh, free Nintendo games <laughs> for her Switch. <laughs> so that's what she's searching for. Uh huh. That's interesting. That's yeah. I, yeah. How how people acclimate themselves to what the media can do. I get very frustrated with Siri because she can't find things. Yeah. Yeah. I I can't. I had an. I had a, a, a little bug to listen to a particular piece of mu- music this morning, and Siri couldn't find it. I am <laughs> mad at her. But um, this but is why I can't. I, I, have, I have no desire to invest in the uh, the smart home, like hey Google technology, you know, or, or little little smart things around my house because yeah. they can't. They they still can't perform the basic functionality I just needed. Looking, you know, performing a search. Mm-hmm. Why do I want to? wire up my house to respond to it. How, well, how do you imagine the future of like the driverless car world? Like, is that something mm. that you're interested in and you would be willing to experiment with or does it do you so, feel like it's creepy? So when we were buying a car uh, a couple of years ago, 
the uh, the technology had just been built into the new line of Hondas, which was uh, uh, automated acceleration and deceleration. And depending on which model you could get, so this is already out, right? That you can basically uh, set the car to stay uh, to to uh, set the speed limit, but also go, you know essentially go to a complete stop depending on what the traffic's like. Uh, in front of it and behind it, which is really crazy. Mm-hmm. And we tested it out, and I have to say it's pretty cool. Um, I don't trust it completely, uh, mm-hmm. and I just don't know. Maybe it, it turns out I'm from a generation that never trusts it, you know. Yeah. In the same way that you you know you'll find the older generations like never trust you know, purchasing something online or something like that, right? Right. Or uh, dating apps. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that old thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I might never trust automated driving, but I, I have to say it was kind of cool to have that technology. And, and, and the more like, um, you know, the, the, this car that we just got, which doesn't have the technology, by the way, we ended up getting a, a used car that did not have the cool, the cool new features. Um, but like, I've already gotten so used to, this is a, the first car that we've bought ever, you know, that's post 2010, you know, the, of this decade. Mm-hmm. And just having things like uh, rear you know, rear view cameras and alerts, you know, if someone's in your blind spot, like all of the, all of the ways in which technology appear to be nudging you towards safety, I think is like, I, I'm now like, I cannot, I, I couldn't imagine not having this technology. Like this is, this is going to become a new standard for me. Yeah. It's, it's gotta have a rear view camera and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So. Yeah, no, I think, and I think it's interesting that the, the, what the, what the transition suggests when you think about the way that a lot of the tech is designed is it would actually be a much safer system. Right. But it has to be kind of the whole system. It's really the transition point where a lot of this is going to get really kind of snaky and weird. Yeah. But I, I mean, I think, um, I, you know, and I don't know how you'd trust this guy on, on anything he says, but, um, you know, we do, there was just an, I saw an article yesterday of Tesla saying that, you know, they expect within a couple of years to have driverless taxis and driverless cabs. And mm-hmm. I think that's really compelling. I mean, we don't, we don't, ex- we, we, we happen to live in a part of the country where like, if I'm hungry and want, you know, whatever I want to eat, I'm a five minute drive away from that. And I can jump, jump in my car and I have nothing to do with traffic. Yet you hear of other markets where like DoorDash is huge, you know, yeah. and like people are like bringing you food uh, and everything just be- becoming this, this taxi cab or taxi cab like system, I think is really fascinating. And what does that mean for, you know, grocery stores? If everything that we come about food is incredibly impulsive, you know, I want the, I, I want to order, you know, takeout, uh, and I want it delivered, you know, from any, any potential, you know, place in the, in the, the area, or I just want to order all the ingredients I need for it, you know, and being able to order directly from something like Whole Foods. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to be really fascinating moving forward. It's just like, I, the way that we, the way that we, you know, we've talked before about, you know, shopping and, and how much we do and don't do of that anymore, but that no longer going to the grocery store and mm-hmm. that all being automated. And we're seeing that already, right. With pickups at Walmarts and targets and, you know, everything where you can just order it online and go get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're going to get a, you know, point where 
someone's delivering it to us and it might even be like a driverless car that's like bringing all this to us which right. is nice yes. or the, the the drone that drops the box on your front right. porch yeah right i think the closest that i've gotten to that is actually doing one of the amazon pantry orders oh really so but but that was it's usually just because there's a good deal on something and then you just cram the box full of other yeah. stuff you need <laughs> we had this really weird so um you know we had something delivered from amazon this last weekend and we happen to live on a on a, a fairly busy corner, which oftentimes we'll see cars pull into our driveway and then, you know, turn around. And someone pulled up into our driveway and like, you know, the most normal Ford Taurus or something like that, you know, and was sitting in my driveway and was sitting there for an awkwardly long time, you know, and I'm like, what, what the heck is this person doing? Like, you are in a private driveway. Well, it turned out he was a drive, you know, delivery driver for Amazon, you know. Mm-hmm. And now the fact that Amazon's almost got its own uber system where you can just become a delivery driver for packages i think it's just it's it's weird yeah yeah you know you don't even you don't have the the ups car driving up anymore <laughs> guy jumping yeah, out in the right no you the have the, the, the strange amazon vehicles that seem to be you know but we're we don't live in a place where you get that like you know kind of like day of or 24 hour service no. as much it's still but we might have you seen the yeah. new there's, there's no. a new distribution service that's opening up right by uh the airport Uh-oh. so yeah so we're climbing up into the tech bubble just to keep things going. That's a good thing. I have I have actually – see, we've screwed up. We, we actually, in the process of talking about what we were going to discuss today, had, had thought we would do something light and then do some heavy stuff in the middle and then get back to light at the end. Oh, no. We left, we, we we, left the we heavy skip, stuff for the We the heavy stuff. So well, luckily, I, we're running low on right. time. We'll so, but I just wanted to mention this really quick because it's a, it's a shout-out to a friend of mine who's a documentary filmmaker. Uh, if you've been following the news in the past day or so, then you know that uh, um, one of the uh, three men who um, committed an atrocious crime in 1999 is scheduled for execution uh, on today, April 24th. Um, what had happened was that there were three white nationalists, basically, who uh, picked a, offered a ride to an African-American man and proceeded to kill him. I won't go into a lot of detail about it, but it was a very, very brutal crime. And um, so, and, and of course, the, the the brutality of the crime really had an effect on the community. And and uh, so, this the the third of the people behind it is supposed to be executed today. What's the reason I wanted to say something about it is because there was a really interesting film made in two thousand one um, by two filmmakers. Uh, Whitney Dow was one of them, and and the main person behind it is Marco Williams, who's a uh, one of my favorite documentary filmmakers, and he made a film called Two Towns of Jasper. And what they did was when the trial uh, after the murder had happened, and they were caught really quickly, um, and so then the trial started. When the trial started. Uh, uh, Marco and, and uh, Whitney decided that they would go to Jasper, Texas, which was the town where the murder took place and where the trial was taking place, and make a film. Uh, Marco is African-American. Whitney is, is white. And so what they did was they each shot in the community of the race that they belonged to. So Marco basically constructed and, and interviewed and visited with the African-American community while the trial was going on, and, and Whitney interviewed the, the white community, and then they cut it all together into this documentary. That's fascinating. And it's it's called Two Towns of Jasper, and it, if if you can find it, it is so worth looking at because it's it's a 
in a way, it is a description of where we were at a particular point in time. When the film came out, it was kind of a big deal. They did a town hall on Nightline after they screened it uh, on ABC, and they had a discussion with the filmmakers and people from the town. Um, but it's just a really interesting, you know, when you're thinking about where we are in terms of race in America right now, I think this is an important moment to think about, you know, where we were then and where we are now with this, you know, with, with what we're thinking about as far as Black Lives Matter, as far as the, the state of white nationalism and about, you know, where that conversation could or, sh- or, or, or should go to sort of help um, help help us to function a little bit better as a single culture and not uh, not marginalize uh, groups of people based on things like race. But you know, again, it's a really interesting historical document, and it's an interesting thing to think about um, when when documentaries are made. You know, what is it that allows you to have access to a community? Um, if somebody showed up at your front door in a, a Taurus and wanted to make a documentary and knocked on your door and said, "Hey," um, we want to shoot a documentary about people in your neighborhood. Do you want to do it? You know, I mean, you'd have to think very carefully about how much totally. you, that, that you trust the person who's doing it. And that's the problem of access. People who make documentary films need to gain access. And so, you know, what they did was they, they you know, in this film, they con- used race as a way of constructing access. Anyway, it's a fascinating documentary and well worth looking up if if you have a chance to. I'm, I'm looking up right now. It doesn't look like... <clears throat> I can't find a digital version of it just from a cursory look. Oh, it looks like there might be something on Vimeo. That might be the place to go. We will, ah. li- we will link to this in the show notes okay. so, this, so people can have access to yeah. that if they want to. Or purchase the the, the, the hard copy from, it looks like, PBS. and mm-hmm. uh, Yeah, because I think it originally ran on Frontline, I think, was cool. uh, where it originally appeared. Anyway. Very cool. Um, yeah. Very interesting. Well, thanks once again for joining us. Next episode, episode number five zero, half a hundred. We've hung on these That's, people. I am terrified that we've done that. We've done this. That we have committed this atrocity forty nine times, and will continue to do so. That's right. So we will. Maybe we'll do something special for episode fifty. Yeah. Who knows? All right. That's it for this episode. We will talk to you all later. Bye.